Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us. We are going to launch into a real controversial subject amongst good-natured Christians. It's the whole question of once saved, always saved, and we're going to start with the book of Sirach in chapter 26 and verse 28. But before we go there, I just want to give you a resource because I'm going to have a lot of scriptures in today's show, and you may not have the opportunity to write a lot of these down. I've written a book entitled Grace and Justification, and you should know that the word justification in English is from the same Greek root as righteousness, or to be justified, to be made righteous. So it's a little more difficult in the English language to get a hold of this, but I explain it in my book, Grace and Justification, and for the once saved, always saved, and the whole question of the nature of assurance of salvation, once one is justified or made righteous, is a critical question. And chapters seven deal with the topic of adoption, and very, very few people bring the question or the topic of adoption along with the question of once saved, always saved. So in the book, if you simply read two chapters, chapter 7 on adoption, chapter 10 on the assurance of salvation or once saved, always saved, those chapters are right to the point. They're only 10 pages each, and it will save you monumental headaches, and they're, they're written to inform both Catholics and Protestants without being unnecessarily offensive. So let's go to that verse that will launch us into this question. It's from Sirach chapter 26 and verse 28. At two things my heart is grieved, and because of a third anger comes over me. A warrior, or rich man, in want through poverty, and intelligent men who are treated contemptuously, and a man who turns back from righteousness to sin. The Lord will prepare him for the sword. Now, you have to understand, uh, Sirach's grandfather, or the original Sirach, was writing in Hebrew. His grandson translated into Greek. But in Hebrew, it has a way of emphasizing things just using numbers. And this is what's called a numerical proverb. And it's like, two things, my heart is grieved. It's like, pop, pop. And then but a third I really get angry about. That's bang, you know, so it's pop, pop, bang. And it's, it's kind of a buildup to two things. And just a little note on translation here. If you go to the very beginning of the book of Sirach, in the prologue, he mentions that there's a difficulty in translating from Hebrew into Greek because not all the words go exactly right. Well, in the Hebrew, the word for warrior and the word for rich man can be 
from the same root. And so the translator just takes a guess. And it's probably better here. A rich man in want through poverty, intelligent men who are basically not respected, but especially, number three, when I see righteous people begin to sin, it makes me angry. Now, just so I include everybody, because my job, basically, at least, by the way, I don't know if I told you how I see my job. A few people know how I see my job, but not everyone does. So here it is. My job isn't to simply say things that are pleasant to the ear and you want to hear. I see my job as sharing to the best of my imperfect ability, but the best of my ability to share truth. And that means we should be willing to be on course corrected by the scriptures, whether we're Protestants or Catholics. We should allow ourselves to be corrected in that way. And so before I launch into the Protestant, once saved, always saved belief, I'd like to say a few words to Catholics. And it's this, I do believe there could be a greater emphasis on the assurance of salvation among Catholics. I realize that some, in fact, many Protestants take assurance of salvation way too far, but for many Catholics, instead of having assurance of salvation arising from their faith, they wrestle with anxiety, doubt, and some even fear. And, and this shouldn't be. I'm just going to tell you something, if you're Catholic, that you may not know. When Protestants evangelize others, particularly evangelicals, particularly evangelicals evangelizing Catholics, and I did this, you may or may not know that the lead question in your evangelism training is over the question of assurance of salvation. Because if you have somebody from a mainline Protestant background who hasn't been taught very well, or if you have a Catholic, and my experience, this worked 100% of the time, that they, they will have an almost total lack of assurance of salvation, and you can turn to various scriptures and show that you should have a reasonable level of assurance of salvation. So I'm just going to read a few verses, and these are some verses that, as Catholics, we can bring into the mix, because uh, sometimes, you know, we can kind of go the other way, because somebody goes too far with salvation assurance, once saved, always saved, well, then we just run the other way, and that would be a mistake. Here's what Jesus said, as recorded in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5 and verse 24. Truly, truly, this means pay a lot of attention when you see that, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life good news, wonderful good news. Here's one that I really love, John 14, 27. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace, that great shalom in Hebrew, peace with God. And that's a part of assurance. It's not once saved, always saved necessarily, but it's not living in fear and doubt and anxiety and uh, despairing of doom and all this type of thing. It's having peace with God. And this has meant a lot to me, peace uh, lately. By lately, I mean basically since the year 2000, the world seems to have gone crazy. And having that peace from God at the center of your life means more to me the worse our cultural situation gets. So that's a great one, John 14, 27. Here's one from St. Paul, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We're not on wobbly ground. We're standing. We have a firm ground, our faith in Christ, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. We don't have to be terrified of our future sharing of our lives with God. So one final one. This is from St. John's first epistle, and it seems that 1 John may have been written to believers and need a bit of assurance. And it's my experience, both as a Protestant pastor in my previous life before Catholic, and as a Catholic, um, both Protestants and Catholics uh, can hear that word of assurance, and St. John and his first epistle is a great place to find it. I'm looking at chapter 4 and verse 16, where he says, since we know and believe the love God has for us, in this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Okay, that was my word to Catholics and Protestants. We all need to hear those words of assurance. Now, here's where the divide between many Protestant groups and Catholic arises. Uh, Many Protestant groups assert an absolute assurance, and it's best known in the expression, once saved, always saved. If you come to a point of faith in Christ, you are justified and you are saved, and no matter what happens after that point for the rest of your life, no matter how you live, you can have complete certainty of final salvation. Okay? That's the absolute assurance. Now, Catholics don't believe in that, but they do believe in assurance. I mean, the Bible says in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So all Christians believe in assurance, all Protestants, all Catholics, but Catholics have a more nuanced view of assurance. I call it faith-filled confidence or faithful assurance. And that you're not perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. No one I know is perfect living on this planet. 
even the Pope goes to confession. So we realize that although we're not perfect, if we are walking in the way and manner of life that God has called us to, we can have peace in our heart. Now, it's not the absolute assurance because God has called us to live faithfully after he has brought us in union with himself when he begins living his life through us. Now, I went just this week to a Protestant site trying to prove what I call absolute assurance. And at that website, they quoted a verse from Hebrews chapter 10. And so I'm not trying to um, do a straw man here. This was the verse. And believe me, I can see a a Protestant pastor going to town on Hebrews 10 and verse 22. And I believe it, but we need to understand it in context. Here's Hebrews 10, 22, and you should be aware of this verse. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a verse often quoted for the once saved, always saved, because the emphasis will will fall on the full assurance of faith. Now, I began this broadcast not trying to critique the Protestant view, but trying to nourish, providing some scriptures as strong nutrients for Catholics to have a stronger assurance, to have a full assurance, to be able to live in peace with God. I think we can emphasize this a bit more. And I realize that it's very hard when you're talking to large groups of people, a Protestant pastor preaching or a Catholic priest giving a homily or even somebody talking over Catholic radio broadcasting. Because early on, I was told my job as a Protestant preacher was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted because there's different types of people. Now, on a show where I say we need more assurance as Catholics, some lukewarm living in moral sin, so-called Catholic, well, I, oh, this is great. You know, I can vote for pro-abort politicians and whatever else, and I have full assurance. No, that's not, this is what this is saying. Okay, back to Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 10.22, that full assurance of faith, and they will claim by full assurance, it means absolute assurance, once saved, always saved. Now, that kind of seems reasonable position to take if you manage to isolate Hebrews 10.22 from the verses immediately following Hebrews 10.22. In fact, if you go to the very next verse and the next few verses, it's unmistakable that the once saved, always saved isn't the understanding that Hebrews 20. 1022 is talking about when it says full assurance. Here's the next verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Okay, you're not a lukewarm walking in the middle type person. You hold it fast. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and, ooh, my, good works? Yeah, you're supposed to do good works. So this is part of living in a life of full assurance. 
Uh, Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more, as you say, see the day drawing near. In other words, Catholics take pretty seriously about worshiping God every week. It's not something you can just blow off on a whim. Okay, well, that seems to be part of living a life of full assurance. Now, here's the next two verses. Blow once saved, always saved, right out of the water. For we, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. See how intense this is? Um, Yes, and there's a dynamic here. And, you know, so much of Christian theology and belief is a balance. And we're to have peace. We're to have full assurance in the hope, not the absolute assurance, not the absolute hope, no matter how we live, because that's not Christianity. That's not even Hebrews 10, because we see that we're supposed to do good works. We're supposed to hold fast our confession. We're not supposed to waver. We're supposed to worship God regularly, and we don't sin deliberately. Now, Catholics do not believe you can lose your salvation inadvertently, like everybody loses their remote to the TV and everybody loses their car keys. Uh, That's things that you do not intend to do, okay, obviously, and that's not what Catholicism regards as a serious sin. A mortal or a grave sin is something that in and of itself is serious, it's a grave matter, and it's committed with full knowledge that it is wrong and seriously wrong, and there's deliberate consent to do that, okay? So, we're supposed to have a life that follows our coming to faith in Christ. And that's why, going on in that same chapter that's quoted in the Assurance of Salvation (laughs) websites, chapter 10 of Hebrews, it says, for you have need of endurance. That's verse 36. In other words, it's not just once saved, always saved, but you have need of endurance so that you will do the will of God. It does matter how you live and receive what is promised, okay? And it says, my righteous one shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, if I was to pick a book of the Bible that would be most appropriate, like if St. Paul was alive today, and, you know, he was writing to uh, cities all over the Roman Empire. But if you would just pick one of his epistles to write to America today or Western Europe or anywhere in the developed world, it would be his epistle or epistles to the church at Corinth. Corinth, even in the pagan Roman Empire, had the reputation in the empire for being the most pagan amongst the pagan empire. Um, The temple of worship was filled with prostitutes, hundreds of prostitutes. And to live as a Corinthian means like New Orleans and Mardi Gras or whatever. Okay. And 
to me, and if you're living in the United States today and you're under, say, 35 years old, you are actually living in downtown Corinth, okay? In other words, there's a lot of pressure to not live faithfully, and that once saved, always saved isn't a ticket to go live as your friends in downtown Corinth, because this is what St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or sexual perverts will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, these were Catholics living in a highly immoral cultural situation, just like today, and St. Paul says, do not be deceived about this. You can't just get a ticket uh, having faith in Christ. No, you, you're supposed to be a changed person and live that changed way. Now, I've had some pretty good friends who are really strong Protestants, knowing I became a Catholic, and, and challenged me over the whole assurance of salvation question. One of my favorite replies, actually, is from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is that man who just doesn't mince words. He speaks truth. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, here's what Ezekiel says. If a wicked man turns away from all his sins and keeps my statues and does what is lawful and right, he will surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. This is what you call good news. This is the best news ever reached planet Earth. And that you can turn, the wicked can turn, no matter what you've done, you can turn, you can repent and begin the steps of a new life, and God promises you will live. But starting in verse 24, when a righteous man, and remember, righteousness and justification are words that have the same root in the original languages. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and he does the same abominable things that the wicked man does, shall he live? Hear this. None of the righteous deeds which he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty, and he shall die. Now, in case you didn't get it the first time reading Ezekiel from Ezekiel 18, the exact same teaching is repeated by Ezekiel in chapter 30. In the New Testament, perhaps the strongest book of the entire, I would say the entire Bible, teaching that salvation is by grace, is Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's the whole epistle of grace and justification. But this is what he says in chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are plain, fornication, purity, licentiousness, jealousy, anger, even envy, drunkenness, and the like. He goes, I warn you as I warned you before, 
that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. St. Paul did not teach once saved, always saved. And now probably the most sobering passage from 2 Peter, our first pope, his second epistle, chapter 2, and he says, if we've escaped the defilements of the world and you are again entangled in them and overpowered by them, your last state has become worse than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back. You see, it's actually worse. A person is worse off to come and taste the saving knowledge and goodness and salvation and justification and righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then in a horrible act of presumption, go live a wicked life. It'd be better for that person never to have known in the first place. Pretty serious. And now, to me, the most potent way to get this across I mentioned if you have a copy of my book, Grace and Justification, to read chapter 7 first, which is about adoption and how we become the sons and daughter of the living God. And this is a, a real deal. This isn't a just a kind of metaphor type thing. We are actually in covenant, in union with the living God, and God is our Father, and he loves us as his children. Okay, that's chapter 7. And then chapter 10, about the assurance of salvation, you simply ask a simple question. Will the Heavenly Father allow one of his willful and rebellious children to leave home, to depart from the faith? And the answer, as almost everyone knows, even people who don't attend church, most people have heard the story about the prodigal son, that the father loves the son, but the son doesn't want any part of it. And will the father allow him to leave? He will. He certainly will. And that's what we read in Luke 15. But we also read, if that prodigal son who has left, maybe even out of presumption and believing in one saved, all of us saved, wants to come back, that's what Catholics have a thing called the sacrament of penance, which is a reenactment of the prodigal son coming home. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 354 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.